So again, Psalm 146, a short psalm, just 10 verses. Psalm 146. Uh, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Well, this is the word of our Lord. This uh, particular psalm is uh, a psalm that belongs to a collection. Normally, these collections of psalms, they, they have something similar in terms of vocabulary and theme. That's why they are uh, called a collection. Uh, these, uh, these collections are called Hallel collections. Hallel uh, means uh, to praise. And if you look at the beginning and the end of our psalm, Psalm 146, it begins uh, with, uh, well, in the Hebrew, it begins with just uh, a single uh, word, uh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. That's, uh, that's the word hallelujah. So Psalm 146 opens with hallelujah and it closes with hallelujah. But Psalm 146 through 150 uh, all do the same thing. Uh, and so uh, these psalms have been uh, bundled together and called Hallel Psalms. And there's uh, a couple of other collections like this in uh, all of the psalms. Psalm, uh, psalms 113 through uh, 118 is a very uh, famous uh, uh, Hallel. It's called the Egyptian Hallel, a collection of psalms that all uh, are magnificent in their terminology for praise. Uh, the Egyptian Hallel, 113 through 118, is called that because uh, these collect, this collection of psalms was sung at the Passover celebration. Again, uh, that commemorates uh, Israel's deliverance from Egypt. So, Egyptian Hallel. So, we're looking at a psalm, uh, 146, that opens a collection of psalms, all of them uh, heavy with terminology of praise, opening and closing with hallelujah. Uh, but what's interesting is there's no uh, thankfulness in this psalm. Uh, psalm 146 is not uh, considered a psalm of thankfulness. And yet, we are in a preaching series that's called Worthy of Thanks. So what's with that? Uh, well, uh, we're looking at these psalms, that these psalms might elevate our hearts, that we would see the, the various ways in which we are, as Christians, called to praise God. Uh, we're praising God and giving thanks to Him uh, for uh, the many varieties of His character. Uh, we're not looking simply at those psalms that are traditionally called uh, Thanksgiving psalms. We're finding uh, reasons to thank God in a variety of psalms. Now, uh, what does this psalm teach us? I think what this psalm lays before us is that uh, the happiness of a man or a woman, the, the word uh, blessed shows up in this psalm, the, uh, the, the blessedness of a man or a woman, uh, this happiness happens uh, 
only as the inner being, only as the inner being is aligned to the work of God. That sounds mysterious, perhaps even mystical, but I want you to notice something, and this is where we'll begin. In the first two verses of this psalm, there is an address to the soul of an individual. And as the poet makes his way through this piece of poetry, he is uh, addressing his soul, coaching his soul. He is making uh, statements of assured confidence to his soul. And what we uh, ought to be thankful to God for is that he speaks to us in such a way that 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 he addresses us very deeply. He addresses our soul. And the happiness of a man or woman can only happen through God's address of that soul. Well, first a couple verses. Uh, First and foremost, I want us to see that this psalm, as the poet is writing, is a psalm that talks about the complete engagement of a person's humanness. Uh, There is a a vital uh, honesty in this psalm, and we see that in the first two verses. Look uh, look, uh, what happens. Uh, it's an internal dialogue. When he says, uh, praise the Lord at the very beginning, it's a single word in the Hebrew. It's hallelujah. And he closes with that same word. But there is also uh, a word that is used in this psalm that is the only command word in the entire piece of poetry. It's the only command. It's the only word that is a command of, of what to do. And it's not the first occurrence of praise at the beginning of this psalm. It's the second one. He says, Praise the Lord, hallelujah. And then he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. And that second occurrence of praise is a command. He is issuing a command. It's not hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But who's he addressing? He's addressing his own soul. He's talking to himself, but he's doing it in a way that by the Holy Spirit we actually can see and hear and reverberate with this internal dialogue. Uh, Praise the Lord, he commands his soul. It's the only command in the entire psalm. Now, think about this. An address to one's soul is deeply personal. I mean, just think in your own experience, uh, when, when it has been that you have actually spoken to your soul, think about it. It's not a silly question. When or in what times in life do you speak to your soul? A couple of examples come to mind. I'm sure there are a flood of examples out there, but one that came to my mind is that when we're in dire circumstances... When life is suddenly not fun and games anymore, when something really serious has happened, and you really are without any plan for solution, and in moments like that, uh, you might say to your soul, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? That might be an example for you of when we would address our soul. That one came first to mind. I don't know if that came first uh, to your mind. But I I think there also are times where we might, uh, so to speak, address our souls uh, that aren't so dire. Maybe moments of deep contentedness. It is strange that it was the dire circumstances that came first to my mind. But it could be that in, in moments of deep contentedness, you might sit quietly, take in the 
the, the sights around you and you might say to yourself, I couldn't be any happier than I am right now. I couldn't be any happier than I am right now. Do you ever address your soul? Talk to yourself. I think you do. We just don't think about this. Now, there's a lesson here in terms of just the existence of a, of a man, a Christian, actually addressing, addressing his soul. Uh, one, of the, one of those lessons is, uh, is directed to you who are highly productive, uh, highly busy individuals. I think the psalmist is saying to you, slow down. I think is what he's saying to you. You notice how I'm addressing you and not me. Those of you who are, who are just frantically busy all the time, the poet wants us to actually stop and sit down and take a moment to uh, commiserate with our soul, as odd as that sounds. And so to highly productive people, stop. You've got to slow down for a bit. But then there's another message for people like me, uh, people who sometimes are, they, they lack that productivity because they're a little bit too self-reflective, a little bit uh, too contemplative. And the, the message to that kind of person is uh, don't boast in this because your contemplation must lead to some kind of action. And here's, here's the proof for this. Uh, in the very beginning of the psalm, he is addressing uh, his uh, soul. But then look what happens in verse 2. He's actually stating uh, things that are active. He says, I will praise the Lord. I will sing. Interestingly, uh, that I will sing, uh, it's not I will uh, praise, it's I will sing. And so there's, there's actually uh, uh, two external actions that are happening as a result of the internal contemplation of his soul. Uh, one is I will praise the Lord, and the other is I will sing to my God. And so those of you who are very busy, stop and contemplate, commiserate with your soul. For those of you uh, who are doing a little too much of that, uh, do something. And the psalmist says in verse 2, praise the Lord, uh, sing to your God. Now notice uh, how serious the poet is. He says these things, praising God, singing to God, these are things that mark your life as long as you're living. He says, these things, these actions, they ought to happen as long as I live, and they ought to happen while I have my being. Now, there's, there's something really remarkable that's happening in these, uh, these first two lines. Uh, what is it that the, that the poet is doing? Uh, now, this word for soul in the Hebrew is, is relatively hard to pin down. Uh, this word for soul shows up more than 700 times in the Old Testament. And, and, and sometimes the word soul, it just refers to a living being, uh, a creature or a person uh, that uh, breathes. Uh, sometimes that's all the word soul means when we see it in the Hebrew. But here it, it, it refers to a part of a person. It refers to the, the inner being of a person. Uh, in, the, in the Hebrew uh, construction of what a soul is, the soul is that engine that drives the other aspects of who you are as a person. Uh, the distinction between uh, mind and soul is not helpful in the Hebrew because when the Hebrew talks about a soul, uh, they're talking about that engine that drives uh, every person's thoughts, every person's feelings and every person's uh, will or action, volition. The, the soul's that inner engine. 
And, and what that engine does is it colors, it pushes forward the thoughts of a person, the feelings of a person, and the acts of a person. And so what the poet is doing in these first two lines is the poet is properly calibrating his own soul. Now, I find this to be remarkably helpful. This is a calling for the Christian to remind your soul of what the Bible says your soul is. If the soul's running well, then the thoughts and the feelings and the will that flow out of every person's soul will run well also. So he's calibrating his soul. And and right after this calibration of his soul, in verse 3, a crisis arises, but he knew a crisis would arise anyhow. In verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the the calibration of a soul, and we might ask this poet, why are you doing this? Uh, This seems way too contemplative. Uh, What is the point of all of this? You're a Christian. You uh, know Jesus. You have faith. Uh, What is the point? And in verse 3, we actually see that there is a crisis. And the crisis has to do with the word trust. I'd like for each of us to understand that when the word trust shows up in this poem, it it shows up as a thunderbolt. It comes out of the middle of nowhere. It represents a significant shift in the language and terminology of the poem. The issue of trust is just there in our face. Put not your trust in princes. And so the crisis is this. For the poet, the crisis is that something has caused his soul to tilt, to wobble, to teeter just a little bit. There's an instability that has entered his life. There's something that he knows about himself such that his confidence has shifted. The word trust is all about confidence and hope. We might say it this way. uh, The things that he knows to expect, well, his knowledge of those things It's become fuzzy. There's a crisis that enters in verse 3. And there's a remarkable tragedy to this crisis. That it would seem as though that in verse 3, the crisis is the result of the poet himself. It's something that he did to himself. He placed his trust elsewhere. Or he knows that it's possible to place his trust elsewhere. Or he knows that he has done this in the past. He knows that trust can be shifted. And so the poet's admitting a frailty of sorts. And that's the crisis. I can put it this way. Every every man, woman, and child in this room has a, a resting state for their inner being. They have this uh, happy zone, as it were, when their purpose and their thoughts and feelings and actions, when all of those things, they just kind of uh, line up. Uh, There is a a peace or a harmony in a season of life. Hopefully it's a season, but uh, it's more likely a punctiliar moment in life. I can say it this way. Uh, It might be that kind of reflection that you have just sitting on a beach watching the water. And it might be in that moment where you think that, you know, my, my purpose and my, my thoughts and my feelings and my actions, everything is just lined up. <laughs> or it might be listening to fine music. Every time I hear uh, this particular piece, everything lines up for me. But it could also be performing an act of mercy, engaged in this particular task, my purpose and my thoughts and my feelings and my will, everything lines up. Whatever that is for you, 
the poet says that in that moment, we're trusting something. In that particular moment, all of us, by virtue of being a human being, we're, we're actually trusting in something. It's this time in life when we don't feel like we are in need of anything, not to mention uh, rescue or help. You can see that in, in verse 3, the word salvation. I don't feel like I need any rescue at all. Uh, there's this time when, when our plans, they just feel secure. That's verse 4. Uh, this, the, the poet says that when in times like that, everyone is they're trusting something or someone. There is some kind of confidence. Now, The illustration of a prince is very interesting. He says, uh, he gives the example of uh, trusting in a someone, in a prince. And the word that he uses for prince is just a generous benefactor. Someone who has a lot of money and a lot of power and they're very generous with it. And they're just waiting for you. If you have any need, they're there. And he uses the example of trusting a prince or some other person. The, the phrase, a son of man, it's a generic phrase. It just refers to a person, a generous benefactor or just a person. And the reason this stands out is that when the poet thinks about where his trust might go, he thinks about a human being trusting in a person. Now, he's going to tell us uh, what that is in opposition to. But for now, note that uh, he believes that sometimes a person can put their trust in another person. And I wonder if if he's using the reference point of a person because he's thinking about putting trust in himself. He is that person. Uh, That phrase, son of man, has the word Adam in it, A-D-A-M. It's a generic word for a human being. I wonder... If this particular poet struggles sometimes with putting his trust not in God, but putting his trust in another person, even himself, his own good plan, his own good choices, his own good intentions. Now, I hope that that sounds all too familiar to us. It ought to. We know that about ourselves. Even as we profess faith in Jesus Christ, we know uh, that we uh, will sometimes get lost in these thoughts of contentedness in which all of our trust is in what we have done, how we have cared for ourselves, how we have uh, protected ourselves against all negative eventualities. And we we should feel what the poet feels. There are times, even as Christians... Our trust is anywhere but in God. And most often, it's localized inside myself. Now, there's only one solution that this poet is going to entertain for this particular crisis, and that begins at verse 5. There's only one solution to him. He says in verse 5, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. Rather than some ethereal help in a generic prince or a generic man or in a generic self even, He names the source of help. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And that's where that word happiness resides in this this poem. Uh, Blessed is he. Now, the poet is jealous on this point. 
The poet may know that his own uh, soul teeters and it needs to be uh, recalibrated. The soul is going to rush after counterfeit hopes. He, he knows this, but what he's going to say is he's going to say uh, jealously, there is but one path for happiness. And that's there in verse 5. And he's going to say that everything else is counterfeit, is temporary, is approximate. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, in the Lord his God. Now, a couple of things to notice here. The poet is addressing believers, right? It, it, it's not the person who merely knows the name of God. It's the person who, can, who, who already calls God his own God. You see that in verse 5. The poet is addressing Christians like me, reminding me where happiness comes from. But not only is he addressing believers, uh, he is admitting vulnerability. That many times in the course of a Christian's life, uh, that man or that woman needs to uh, refocus their soul. Uh, Sometimes the Christian is going to seek help elsewhere, or sometimes the Christian is going to place hope elsewhere. And so the poet is offering a command, he is offering himself as an example, and and he's showing us what humility looks like. It's acknowledging this about ourselves. But the only solution he is going to entertain is a solution that comes from God. And that's what happens in verses 6 through 9. It is this rapturous praise, not of self, not of that prince, but a rapturous praise of someone who is far outside of his soul, but that has the power to penetrate that soul. You know, what we see in verses 6 through 9, whatever else is there, I want us to understand that this is the great conflict between the secular worldview and the Christian worldview. That the answer to the soul's need, according to the secular worldview, is someplace inside that person. That is the great answer for the soul's need. That is the great source of happiness and blessedness. Uh, that is the great, the great recalibration of one's thoughts, feelings, and actions. It's somewhere deep inside of them. But that is not what verses 6 through 9 are teaching us. The answers to the soul's need is not inside that person, but outside that person. That's where the answer of the soul's need resides. Look what the poet says. The entire entire poem just gets hurled up into the air with this magnificent language, uh, not of what the poet is enduring, what the poet is discerning from staring at his own soul, what the poet knows about himself as he uh, chases after uh, other uh, hopes, puts his trust elsewhere. It's the rapturous delight in God being who God is. He is the creator of all things, including myself. He's the sustainer. He holds all things together, including myself. He protects the oppressed, feeds the hungry, liberates the prisoner, opens blind eyes, lifts the bowed down, uh, lifts those who are humiliated and distressed, loves the innocent, cares for the exiled, the widowed, the orphaned, stops the wicked. You see, the poet doesn't contemplate his soul long without contemplating the work of God. There's a lot here about what Christian growth looks like. Remember the crisis. This poet, though a believer, though has the indwelling spirit working in them, 
though has the word of God issuing forth from his pen that we would have it before us now, uh, this very poet is prone to place his trust elsewhere, likely himself. That's the crisis. And that's our crisis. And so he directs his soul to God. God is personal. He is the God of Jacob. This God has entered a time and space and all that that entails. This God is, but this God also does all of the things he's listed in 6 through 9. Actions of this God. How remarkable is that? What a tremendous reminder that is to the Christian That we can do two things. That we can uh, know that God is uh, God alone and know that we place our trust elsewhere. Uh, To know that we are Christians united to God through Jesus Christ, but to also know that we are prone to wander as Christians. Those two things we can know about ourselves and yet not be in conflict. Because God knows that about us as well. I want all of us to notice where the poet takes us in verse 10. This magnificent praise, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. And when we think about the soul's anguish at the beginning of this psalm, he summarizes by telling us not what we should do or what we can do. He tells us what God will do. He is again in verse 10 addressing believers. Your God, he's your God. And it may be that many that the poet is addressing are people who just know that much. He's my God. He's my God. He's my God. I have no idea what I'm going to do in this difficult circumstance. I am speaking here to my soul. I know just this much. He is my God. The poet says that's enough. Let me remind you about your God. And the poet knows that the soul needs constant help. Our soul's alignment vacillates and shifts, wobbles and totters. And the poet knows that about us. So he'll say this. If the happiness or blessedness of a man or woman's inner being happens only with reference to God, how will it happen? If my soul is to find any relief... If my soul is to be aligned at all such that my thoughts and my uh, actions and my feelings uh, all align with who God is, how is this going to happen? And it is uh, important for us to notice that in this psalm, the poet tells us more about what God does than what we do. And there's a reason for that. How will my soul be realigned? It's God who has to make the massive leap. Your soul is so contorted it will never elevate itself to the plane of God. It won't. Believe me. I've tried, and many in this room have tried. No, God himself must leap down towards us. He must be that thunderbolt, thunderbolt, and he comes to us. He is the one who makes that massive leap, and he comes to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who helps In verse 5, Jesus is the one who saves. The very word for salvation is the name of Jesus in verse 3. He is the one whose plans never fail, verse 4. He is the one whose breath has not left him. He reigns today, also verse 4. And he is the one who created all things, including you. He is the one who holds all things together, 
including you. He is the one who protects the oppressed, who feeds the hungry, who liberates the prisoner, opens blind eyes, lifts up the humiliated and the distressed, loves the innocent, cares for the exiled, the widow, and the orphaned, and will finally, once and for all, stop the plans of the wicked. Is your soul elevated? This is the God who has come to you in Christ Jesus. He will do all of these things, and all of these things have already been inaugurated. He has begun. And you, you are saved. It's nothing that you have done. You know that when you think about your own conversion, but when you think about your own sanctification, how you grow as a Christian, that too comes by the work of God. He is the one who does these things. Have you seen Jesus? Do you know him? Well, this is the great uh, recalibration of the soul. It's not uh, your strength, vitality, vitality, and energy. It's actually God coming to you, and he's come to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, so as we uh, look at these psalms, we, we find that, that Jesus is the one who has brought them to fruition in our lives. As we gather together and worship and partake uh, of the uh, bread and the cup, we're also being reminded of what Jesus has done for our salvation. These are the things the work of God in Christ Jesus, his son, that realign our soul and then teach us how to think, how to feel, and how to act. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, enjoy worship together, we know that we are being fed and cared for, and we thank you uh, for that. Uh, This is a spiritual endeavor, but not because of anything that we have done but rather what you have done. We thank you for saving us in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen.